What's happening, Hume Lake? How are y'all? Did you have a nice Friday? Yeah? All right. How many of you broke up with the person of your dreams today? Yeah, it's kind of, it's the last day of camp, you know? It's just like there's a natural rhythm to things in the world, and that's one of them. Just get used to it. Hey, a couple things uh, before we dive in. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 to start, and then we're going to bump back to Daniel 6. So if you have a Bible, you can start turning to Daniel 9. Let me say three things before we, uh, before we dive into that. First one is this. Here's a thank you from me. Thanks. Thanks for paying attention. Thanks for asking good questions. Thanks for making me feel at home this week. Many of you came and got to know me. We had some good conversations. We laughed together, talked together, cried together some of the time. Thanks for, for welcoming me into your life for this week. I'm grateful. And I live in Fullerton, California, which is kind of uh, North Orange County. If you're ever down there or if you ever need something I can help with, holler at me, all right? Sound good? Yes, you all right? Uh, I did not finish my book. So we, we did it well. But yeah, thanks for all of you. Yeah, it's good. So that was number one. Uh, number two is, uh, oh, I want to take a picture with you. So hold on a second. I'm just trying to remember all these things. This is going to be one of those... Uh, Point fives, ready? Get ready. All right, here we go. Okay, good. That's just so, you know. <laughs> Thanks. I love you too. Um, the, the last one is this, and we'll talk about this a little bit tonight. Like you guys know, some of you know, camp is great, but camp's not real life, right? This isn't the real thing. And the way in which, and we'll talk about this as we dive into Daniel 6 in a few minutes, but the way in which to like follow Jesus as an ambassador long-term, and I'm just talking about my own experience. You, you can't do that as a lone ranger. You cannot do it in isolation. Sometimes you'll hear people say like, oh, all I need is just like Jesus and me. And there's like a, there's a, there's a truth in that, that really all you need is Jesus and you. But he built you for community. He built you to make sense with other people. There are things about you that are fantastic, but there are things about other people that you need in your life. And for us to walk this journey together, we need each other. So here's the third thing I wanted to say to you before we dive in. Stay connected to your church. If you're not currently connected to a church, maybe you came up this week with a church group that isn't normally your church group. Hey, can I just ask you a favor? Will you, will you just try that church out, please? Will you get dialed in and be a part of that church? If you're currently part of a church, root in. Like, make that your people. Make that your community because we cannot do this thing by ourselves. We're not built for that. We're built to do it together. We're called the body of Christ and an eye by itself, or a hand by itself, or a foot by itself is gross, right? It's only when you put the whole thing together like Voltron, it all starts to make sense, right? That's an 80s reference. You don't have to know it. It makes me happy to say it. There we go. All right. So here we go, Daniel chapter 9. Now I want to tell you a little bit about the end of the book of Daniel. Uh, really, after chapter 6, once you get into chapter 7, what you deal with for the rest of the book is what we call apocalyptic literature. And you're more than welcome to read it and study it. It's got a prophetic nature to it. Um, it isn't narrative the way that the first six chapters are. So the first six chapters are narrative. What that means is we've been reading a story every day, right? We've been reading the story of Daniel and his friends. You get to seven, and it becomes this prophetic, apocalyptic, very difficult historically uh, to interpret, uh, like, a mix of all kinds of things, and, it, and there are a lot of people who argue about the way the last part of the book of Daniel should be interpreted. I don't want to get into the weeds with you on any of that tonight. I want to tell you this. The overarching message of the last half of Daniel is actually very simple to understand. No matter how you interpret the rest of the little itsy-bitsy pieces, the big picture of the last half of the book of Daniel is this message, and you heard it in the video we just watched. The message in the last half of the book of Daniel is kingdoms of men will come and go, right? 
Kingdoms will rise and fall. Empires will rise and fall. There is no lasting kingdom on earth except the kingdom of Jesus, right? The kingdom of God is the only one that will stand. Now, Jesus' name isn't mentioned specifically in the book of Daniel, but there is a prophetic pointing ahead to the kingdom of God, which Jesus sits on the throne of, right? So whatever else, I encourage you to read the last part of Daniel. It is complicated. You probably want to grab a commentary or two to go with that to kind of get some guidance in it. It's hard to follow. But the point that you'll see that rises to the surface in the last half of the book is that everything's going to change with regard to human empires and human, human kingdoms. But God's kingdom reigns supreme. That's the essence of the last part of the book. And Daniel experienced that in his own life as well. What I want you to see as we kick off our time tonight in Daniel chapter 9 is there's a prayer by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Then it gives us a little bit of the timeline that happens in the first year of the reign of King Darius. So we heard about King Darius last night with the lion's den. During that time period, Daniel prays this prayer. And the reason that I want to look at it, we won't even read the whole thing, we're just going to read some portions, is that I want you to see the heart of a guy who has been in an uncomfortable spot for a long time. Daniel didn't plan to go to Babylon. Daniel didn't have to, he didn't plan in his life to have to serve Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or Darius or eventually Cyrus. He never planned to live the life he's living. His parents, when he was born, never thought, oh, we hope our baby grows up to be an ambassador of God's kingdom in a foreign place where he's essentially a slave. His life has been nothing that he thought it would be. And yet in the midst of that exile for him, he is faithful. He continues to call upon God. He continues to confess his sin. He continues to ask God to take him and his people home. And that's what we see in Daniel chapter 9. The reality is that you and I don't get to choose our circumstance. We've already talked about that this week. Some of you are going through the best years of your life, and some of you are going through the hardest years of your life, and none of you chose that circumstance, whether good or bad, right? God is the one that's in control, and you're going to have good seasons and bad seasons. There's going to be moments that are hard. While you and I are not exiles in the classic sense of the word exile, we are pilgrims and sojourners. We're certainly ambassadors. And there are going to be moments that don't go the way you want to go. And what I want to finish with with you tonight is the ability for you to be resilient, right? We talked early in the week about being people of resolve, to be resilient, to be people of endurance, even when life doesn't necessarily go your way. So look at this prayer from Daniel after years in captivity. He says this, starting in, uh, let's look in verse 3. Daniel says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. And please for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. This is a prayer that Daniel is praying decades after he's gone into exile, right? He's been in exile for a long time. He's had all kinds of things happen. And he's still in a posture of saying, this is my fault. I'm here because I blew it. I'm here because our people blew it. And we repent before you, God. We are at your mercy, right? So we see a posture of humility. We see a posture of calling upon God and asking for his forgiveness, right? If you jump down just a little bit further, jump down with me, if you will, all the way down to, to verse 18 of chapter 9. At the end of this prayer, or close to the end of it, he says, Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, 
but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel's in a place where he acknowledges that God is in control, where he acknowledges the reason why he's even in this foreign place at all. But he also loves God and knows God loves him enough that he feels comfortable to say, I'd like you to get me out of here. I'd like you to grab your people and take them back to their homeland. He says at the very beginning of Daniel chapter 9, I was looking through the books of the prophet Jeremiah, and as I was looking through the books, I realized that our people are going to be here for 70 years according to Jeremiah's prophecy. He knows the prophecy. He knows who God is. He knows what God has said. He knows who he is and what he and his people have done wrong. And yet he feels comfortable to come to God and say, here I am in the situation in which I found myself. I don't necessarily like it, but I acknowledge you as God. I acknowledge my place in this whole scenario. And I want to say to you, it would be great if you got me out of here, right? Here's what I want you to take away from that. Your life isn't going to always go the way you think it's going to go, but you always have the ability to approach God and say, help. Say, hear me. God, will you do something about this circumstance? It said it really beautiful in the video. We're never alone. Sometimes it might feel like we're at arm's length, but because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have something that Daniel himself didn't have. Number one, we don't have to come back for forgiveness again and again and again because the sacrifice of Jesus paid that for us once and for all. But the Bible also teaches that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you and I have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit, that is God of the universe, lives within you. Your body is his temple, and our community as the church is his temple, right? Both corporately and individually. So you don't ever have to wonder whether God is with you. Good seasons and bad seasons, God is with you. We've all had moments where things didn't go the way we want. I remember when I was a senior in high school, my mom signed me up to be in the, uh, the Easter play at her church, and I didn't really know what that was going to mean, but not only did she sign me up to be in the Easter play, she signed me up to play Jesus in the Easter play, right? So I have to wear the like white robe and the blue sash. They glue a beard on me because I didn't have my own beard at the time. Uh, I have to wear the wig. I had to learn all kinds of lines, and it was like this big musical. So there's like a choir, an orchestra, there's like all these scenes. And I remember, uh, you know, after memorizing all the stuff and getting it all together, we finally get to Easter Sunday, right? The big celebration day for Christians at my mom's church. Easter Sunday, and there's this big performance. There's all these people that have come out. And at the very pinnacle, at the very end, the conclusion of the program, there was this part where they, um, I was in like a harness, and they hooked me up to a cable, and then I get lifted up into the air. Now, the, the roof of my mom's church was about as high as the roof in Ponderosa Chapel, and so I'm going up on a cable, and like, you know, the orchestra is swelling, the choir singing, it's like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know why it sounds like Little Mermaid to me, but it does a little, they're like, oh, and I, I'm like lifting up my hands, and I start to go up into the air, Easter Sunday morning, up, up, up in the air, and there's like a little hatch in the ceiling that's about the size of that vent up there, and I'm supposed to go up into that hatch, and you guys, as I'm going up, I'm thinking like, I don't want to blow this, right? Because there's all these people, and they're looking at me. I can see it on their faces. Like, some of them are worshiping. Some of them have tears in their eyes. They're, like, watching me go up in the sky. And I've got my hands up, and I feel like I want to represent Jesus in a way that, like, makes him proud. I want to honor him, you know, as I go up. Well, when I get to the little opening in the roof, uh, the thing they hadn't really told me was that the, up above, 
there's not like a room up there. It's just like a kind of a crawl space. So you get pulled up into the hatch and you get about halfway into it. And what I was supposed to do was like lock my arms on either side of the opening up there and then pull myself in. Uh, but what the producers of the program had not realized and maybe has been obvious to you all week is that I have very little or no upper body strength. And so uh, I go up in the air, remember, oh, I'm going up and I get, in, I get halfway into this hatch in the roof and I lock my arms but I, I can't, I, don't, I just don't have the strength to like pull myself up. So then I just start to like kick my legs, you know? I'm like trying to like muscle myself in. And I know for a fact that I was like making grunting sounds. So I'm up in the sky and I'm like, oh yeah, oh, I can't, I can't help, you know, whatever. And I don't really know what it looked like from the audience, but I imagine that there were a lot of people that day who were like, oh no. The uh, Lamb of God is having trouble ascending to his glorious throne. Chubby Jesus doesn't, doesn't have the ability to seat at the right hand of the Father. You know, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden there's like a stage hand up in the roof and he just like grabs me and yanks me in, right? And there's like a little bit of applause at that point. People are like, he did it, hooray, you know? Well, when I... Uh, Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Next year, I'll be performing that feat for you all live in Ponderosa Chapel. No, no, not true. That would be humiliating for all of us. Uh, here's the deal. What was I trying to do on that Easter Sunday? I was trying to represent Jesus well, and I didn't do it, right? It didn't go the way I planned. I don't know what it looked like to the people in the audience, but look, there are going to be times in your life where you're trying to represent Jesus well as his ambassador, as a citizen of two kingdoms, and things aren't gonna go the way you want. And in those moments, it's important to have hope because that hope is what will create endurance. So what I wanna do in the little bit of time we have left is I, is I wanna do two things. The first one is I wanna talk for a second about where our hope comes from for those of us who are ambassadors. For Daniel, he's waiting for, for Judah to be restored to its glory days, right? For us... Christians around the world and historically, almost universally, agree on two things. The first one is that Jesus, our King, is coming again. Jesus, our King, is coming again. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, we talked about that last night, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because he already did that, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The implication is that those of us who are followers of Christ will live our days eagerly waiting for the return of our king. There's a day when Jesus will return, and nobody knows the day or the hour, nobody knows when he will come, but there is a sense of eagerness and excitement and anticipation that gives us hope. We look forward to the day that Jesus will return because we also believe not only that Jesus will return, but that when he returns, he will restore and redeem all things. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 21. Listen to this. John the Revelator says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Uh, in Old Testament times, the sea for the, for the Jewish people represented chaos and evil. He says that the sea is gone, right? He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Right? John is watching, and Jesus the king comes back, and he restores all things. He redeems all things. When we say Jesus is a redeemer, we don't just mean that he redeems our individual lives. He does that, but he redeems everything. Everything right now that is a source of grief and sorrow and pain for you will be repaired when Jesus comes again. Everything on this planet that is broken, the pollution and the crime and the hatred and the injustice, all of those things will be made right when Jesus returns. There are literally a million reasons for an ambassador of the kingdom of God to be eager and excited for Jesus to come back because he will restore everything. In fact, you and I live in a really interesting window. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you and I live in this really interesting window. It's the only window in human history in which faith in Jesus is possible. Think about this for a second. There's a day coming when my king will come back to the earth and he will restore all things, and faith will no longer be necessary. There will no longer be a need for people to believe in Jesus because He will be the king of all things. Philippians 2 says, there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day, there won't be one person looking at another saying, would you believe in Jesus? That would be stupid, like saying, would you believe in McDonald's? If I said to you, do you believe in McDonald's? Confess your faith in McDonald's. You'd be like, it's right there. There's nothing to believe in. I know somebody one time who told me uh, she was gonna get a tattoo and I was like, what's the tattoo you're gonna get? And she says, I want, to get, I want to get a tattoo that says, believe in Japanese. And I was like, what's to believe in? It's a language, right? It exists. There's nothing to believe in. She goes, what? And I was like, why would you get a tattoo that says, believe in Japanese? Like, why do you need to believe in that? And she goes, what? And I was like, I don't understand. She goes, I'm getting the word believe written in Japanese. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense, right? There is a day coming when faith will no more be necessary, right? There are some of you in the room who put your faith in Jesus for the first time last night, and it was this beautiful moment. But that's only possible because we live in this window before the return of the king. When Jesus returns, everyone will know who Jesus is. And those who have put their faith in him will live eternally with him, and those who have not put their faith in him during that window of time will be fixed in that position of spiritual death. And so... As we eagerly await the return of our glorious God and Savior, it says in Titus, right? As we eagerly await his return, his grace teaches us to live different lives. Titus 2 says his grace is our teacher. That free gift of resurrection life that he gave us teaches us to live a different life in this window of time before our king returns. The now and the not yet. We're dual citizens, but someday we will be sole citizens of the kingdom of God. And all the pain and all the sorrow and all the grief and all the injustice and all the bigotry and all the hatred, it will all be made right. And in that window of time while we wait, there is a call for us to endure, to be resilient. So come with me, if you will, as we, as we finish tonight, to Daniel 6 again. We skipped over the first section. I told you briefly last night that there were some people, these Chaldeans, who were really trying to get Daniel, and they wanted to get rid of him, not because they hated his God, but because they wanted his position in the government. They were jealous of his success. 
And so they plot together to figure out how to get him out of power. And I just want you to look at his life. Daniel is living, as we already saw from Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is living in this in-between time. He wants to go home, but God hasn't seen fit to send him and his people home. And so he is stuck in a foreign place, an ambassador on foreign soil. And this is the life that we see Daniel live. I want you to see four quick things in the time we have. It says this in Daniel 6.1. It pleased Darius, that's the king, remember, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. The first thing I want you to note is that in the midst of this foreign place where the people didn't care about his God, where the people didn't care about his beliefs or where he came from, in the middle of that place, Daniel demonstrated an otherness a distinguished spirit. There was something different about him, right? Even in the video we watched a second ago, the new king, whatever his name was, the guy with the hat, he goes, there's just like, what do you know that I don't know? As you leave Hume Lake tomorrow and you go back to your homes and back to your schools and back to your teams and back to your families and back to your jobs, as you think about what it's gonna look like to live as an ambassador on foreign soil going forward, the first thing I want you to, to do is to embody a different spirit. And it's the spirit of God that lives within you. Let the spirit of God shine out of you and put Jesus on display on your, on your teams and at your job and in your family and in your schools. Let the spirit of God guide and direct you and do what Daniel has done here. Demonstrate a distinct and different spirit. You should look different than anybody else you know because you've met the king of the universe and he's transformed you because you're being sanctified, transformed into his image over time. First of all, Daniel had a different spirit, right? There was something different about him. Let's keep reading. It says in verse four, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find any ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. These men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. The second thing I want you to see, not only that he had this distinct otherness, but he also made them, he forced his peers to persecute him for his faith. He forced them to persecute him for his faith. Let me tell you what I mean by that. They wanted to take him out, and they couldn't find anything. Can I tell you that for some of you in your schools and in your jobs, the places that you run, in your circles, your friends won't ever even consider Jesus they won't ever even consider the accuracy and authority of the Bible because long before they ever get around to thinking about whether Jesus truly rose from the dead, they will discount everything you've said because of the way you live, right? Long before they ever evaluate your faith, they'll go, I don't know what that guy believes and I don't care, he's a jerk and I don't wanna have anything to do with what matters to him. Long before they'll ever evaluate Jesus, they'll dismiss you because of the kind of jokes you tell, because of the kind of places you go, because of the way you treat other people. Long before you ever have an opportunity to say, will you follow Jesus with me, they'll discount you because you have not lived a life of impeccable standing, right? There are all kinds of other ways to pull your ministry apart before they ever evaluate Jesus. I hear people sometimes who are like, man, I really want to share my faith with my friends, but nobody wants to hear it. And I kind of wonder, like, is it that they don't want to hear it, or is it that you're a jerk at your school? Are you a difficult person? Are you full of hate? Are you cruel to others? Are you racist? Are you sexist? 
right? If you are, don't expect your friends to listen to what you have to say about Jesus. They're going to dismiss you long before they ever evaluate your faith. The second thing I want you to see about Daniel is that when those people wanted to take him out, the only thing they could find to criticism on, criticize him on was his faithfulness. His faithfulness was the only thing they could sort of get their fingernails under to sort of pull apart the structure of his life. So they hatched this plan, and we already talked about that. These high officials, look at verse 6. These high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they said, hey, uh, we don't have to necessarily read it. I'll give you the summary. I did this last night as well. They said, hey, nobody should be praying to anybody but you. And Darius goes, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, we're going to make that thing a law. So skip down with me, if you will. They ask him to uh, sign it into law. Look at verse 9. King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Look at verse 10 with me. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously, right? The third thing I want you to see, number one, there was a distinct otherness about his character. Number two, he didn't give them any reason to discount him because he lived a life that was above scrutiny, right? They could only persecute him for his faith. That was the only thing they could find. Thirdly, Thirdly, what we see in Daniel's life is that he has an unwavering system. There's a routine in place. And uh, here, here's what I mean. When I was a kid and I heard the story of Daniel, I always imagined that like Darius signs the law into place. And, uh, and then when, when Daniel hears the law, he's like, what? You can't tell me not to pray to God. I won't stand for it. And then he rushes off to his house and he throws open the shades in his upper windows and he prays as loudly as he can as sort of an act of civil disobedience. I had always assumed as a child that what Daniel does here in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, is that he fights the system, right? That what he's doing is he's looking at the government and he's saying, you can't tell me what to do. But you know what? That's not what's happening here in Daniel 6. What's happening in Daniel 6 is that they're able to capture him and they're able to arrest him because he does the same freaking thing every day, right? Every day he prays three times a day. So they're like, how are we going to trap him? The way we trap him, we know where he'll be in the morning. We know where he'll be at noon. We know where he'll be at the night. He's going to pray no matter what we say. They are able to predict his faithfulness. Let me ask you, uh, how much would your like, daily routine change if they outlawed prayer? For me, it would be, I mean, depending on the week, sometimes the outlawing of prayer would be similar to if they outlawed exercise bikes. It would change my life almost not at all, you know what I'm saying? Daniel has this system of prayer. The third thing I want to point you to is that as you head home, and you're looking to be resilient in the face of a world that doesn't understand what you believe or care, you have to put systems into place. Historically, Christians have called these spiritual disciplines, right? Spiritual disciplines, that we would be people of prayer, that we would be people who are reading God's word, that we would be people who are gathered together for worship, that we would be people who are confessing our sins to one another, right? Being vulnerable and honest about the places that we're struggling. There are these disciplines that you can put into practice, and you don't just do them at camp or do them once a year when the camp speaker tells you to. You put these things into place so that you can put Jesus on display day in and day out out. How amazing would it be for you to have such a, a faithful system in place in your life that your friends who don't know Jesus could predict where you're going to be and what you're going to do because you are committed to Christ, right? There's a difference in his spirit. There's a difference about who he is. He forces them to persecute him for his faith, and he has this unwavering system that doesn't change. The last thing I want to highlight for you, and we'll be done, is this. We talked about it last night. 
Daniel has managed through his faithfulness, through his wisdom, through his character and conduct to create this uh, incredible affection from Darius. We looked at it last night. You remember what happened with Darius? When Darius finds out that he has to throw Daniel in the lion's den, you remember how grieved he is? It said he couldn't sleep. It said he stayed up all night trying to figure out ways to get around the law he himself had written. The morning after the lion's den, Darius runs to the, to the place where the lions were kept and he yells down into the pit, Daniel, has your God protected you? What do we see there? Well, what we see is that this foreign king who hadn't even necessarily known Daniel that long, because he hadn't been king that long, this foreign king loved Daniel. The last thing I want to say to you, and this is maybe the most important to me, is that we want to be building this affectionate solidarity. You guys have heard me use the word solidarity a lot this week. Solidarity in brokenness. Solidarity in our need for a savior. Solidarity in the fact that we were all created in the image of God, no matter what our sex, no matter what our race, no matter what language we speak, no matter how much money we make, we are all made in the image of God, right? And what Daniel has done is he's, he's created this affection between him and this person that doesn't care about his God. You know that it's possible for us to live these kinds of lives in the world where the people that you know that don't give a lick about your church, that don't care at all about the Bible, that don't currently care at all about Jesus can actually care deeply about you? It is my belief, and I want you to hear me very clearly, that you and I only have the ability to speak prophetically. I mean, like a prophet, like Daniel. We only have the ability to speak prophetically into the lives of people who know that we love them and who love us as well. It takes a lot of work to build relationship. I don't know about you, but I've seen people sometimes on the side of the road, or one time I saw a dude at golf and stuff, right, which is a golf, like a miniature golf place in Arizona. I saw a dude with a megaphone, and he's standing out in front of the, the golf and stuff, and he's like, People of Arizona, you are going to hell, you know? And I was like, whoa, we're just trying to play some putt-putt golf here, you know? And he's shouting, the veins are standing out in his neck and whatever. And he's shouting to people he doesn't know. You want to know how many people receive that message? Zero. It is possible to say prophetic things to people. But the, way in, the platform we stand on is one of love. It's one of grace. It's one of mercy. It's one of affection. Favor with God and man is a thing that the Bible tells us the church in Acts had. If we look at Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says this, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus says, I want you to love your neighbor the way I have loved you. And how has Jesus loved us? Sacrificially, he laid down his life for us. Daniel is a man of, of distinct character. He's a man who has uh, the integrity that they can only persecute him for what he believes. He is a man who absolutely has an unwavering system, spiritual disciplines in place in his life. And he's a man who's worked very hard to endear himself to a culture that doesn't care about his God. This is the way forward for us. In hope, in hope of the eventual return of Jesus and the restoration of all things, we live lives right now informed by grace, and we put an accurate picture of Jesus on display. Romans chapter 13, verse eight says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Right? Romans says, you shouldn't be indebted to anybody for anything. Don't owe anybody anything, but the one debt you will never get rid of, the one debt you will always have as a follower of Christ is the debt to love your fellow men and women. 
That debt never goes away. I'll finish with one story. Um, when, uh, like when my daughter and, and my youngest son were really little, I get a call one day at work, and my, and my wife goes, uh, you got to come home. There's a weird thing happening at home. And I was like, okay, like, well, what's up? So I go home. My wife had been standing at the kitchen window, and she looks out in the backyard, and my daughter, who was like four at the time, was chasing my son, who was like two at the time. She had grabbed our big family Bible, and she was chasing him around the backyard with the big family Bible, and she was trying to hit him. And when she caught him, she'd hit him with the Bible, and she'd go, you're going to hell. You're going to hell, you know? And my wife's like, ah! So she goes into the backyard, and she like breaks him up. She takes the Bible. She's like, what are you doing? Why are you hitting your brother? Why are you hitting somebody with the Bible? And my kids are like confused. They don't know why she's mad. They're like, we were just playing a game. And she's like, what game is this? It's awful. And my kids go, oh, we were just playing mean Jesus. <laughs> and my wife's like, what? She's like, what is mean Jesus? That's not a thing. Like, what are you talking about? And they're like, why are you getting mad? She's like, I'm calling your dad. So I came home and I talked to them and they're like, we were just playing mean Jesus. And I said, mean Jesus isn't the thing, right? And I, so I had to correct my kids and talk to them about it. But in hindsight, like the, the following week, I was thinking about it. And I was thinking about how many times I meet somebody new. At the time, I was living in Long Beach. And I was thinking about this dude I had met at the AT&T store. I went to upgrade my phone. And I was talking to the guy, and we were having this great conversation, and then he asked me what I did for a living, and I told him I was a pastor. And the moment I told him I was a pastor, it was like his whole countenance changed. Right? All of a sudden, he didn't want to talk to me. He wasn't friendly anymore. You could just tell his position changed because he heard what I did for a living. And I was thinking about it. And it dawned on me that in this world, there are times where when we tell other people that we're Christians, what they imagine and what they suppose, what they picture, is mean Jesus, right? The guy at the AT&T store, or maybe your friends on the softball team, or your friends on the soccer team, or your friends in the theater department, or whatever, when you tell them you're a follower of Jesus, what they imagine is that pretty soon you're going to grab a really big Bible, and you're going to chase them around the yard, and when you catch them, you're going to hit them and tell them they're going to hell. My question for you as we finish our week here at Hume Lake, as we've been talking about resilience, ambassadorship, I just want you to think, why is it that the world, when they hear about Christians, they picture mean Jesus? It's confusing, because you can read the Bible cover to cover, and you won't see mean Jesus in there, right? Jesus, mean Jesus is not described in the Bible. Any, I know I'm holding up an iPad, but you know what I mean. Mean Jesus isn't in there. So where did they learn the idea of mean Jesus? The place where our world learned about mean Jesus is not from the pages of Scripture. The place where they learned about mean Jesus is from us. We taught them that. We taught them that Jesus wants to chase them around the yard and hit them with the Bible, and that just isn't who he is. The, the God of the universe came to the earth in the flesh and he laid down his life for his people to restore relationship between them and himself. He did that for each of us and he wants to do that for the people that you know. This year as you go home, as you, as you take on the story of Daniel and you think about what it looks like to be an ambassador, I, I pray that you will be people of a different spirit that you will be people of impeccable standing, integrity, nothing people can sort of dismiss your faith for, that you'll be people who have an unwavering system, that you'll be people of affectionate solidarity, that you'll grow love in your communities that will draw people to Christ who loves you and loves them and can redeem them just like he redeemed you. God bless you guys as you head home tomorrow. It's been a privilege to be with you. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would stir in each of us to be faithful ambassadors who reveal you with accuracy, who put on display the God of grace and the God of justice and the God of mercy. 
that we would put on display a true and accurate picture of who you have been to us, a God who knows us, who knows our brokenness, and loves us still, a God who forgives us and calls us by his grace to learn to live holy lives while we wait for his return. Would you help us to be people who put you on display with accuracy, I pray. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.